You'll join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, this morning we will be in verses 21 through 26 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. You can find our text on page 941 in the Blue ESV Bible. The title of our sermon this morning is Righteousness Through Faith. And our key words for our worshipers in training are faith, righteousness, and law. Now, if you are familiar with youth or high school or even NCAA sports, you are likely familiar with what is called the mercy rule or what is ironically less mercilessly called the slaughter rule or the skunk rule. The idea is that in a two-competitor sport, when the competition uh, is going on, it is ended earlier than the scheduled endpoint if one of the competitors of the team is presumed to be so far ahead with a very large and insurmountable scoring lead over the other that they want to mercilessly bring the game to an end. So it is called the mercy rule. It spares further humiliation for the team that is losing. The most recent example of, uh, of a NCAA football game shortened by invoking the rule occurred in September of 2018 during a game where the University of Georgia football team played against Austin P. University in Athens. With the score at 45-0 to zero in the end of the third quarter, the Austin P. University coach will Will Haley suggested to Georgia head coach Kirby Smart that, that they play a 10-minute fourth quarter instead of the typical 15-minute fourth quarter. The coaches, the referees agreed the game would be shortened. That's a big score. But on September 24th, before then, 2016, the Missouri Tigers led Delaware State 58-0 to at halftime. I'm sorry if there's any Delaware State fans in here. I didn't even know that was a school. <laughs> the coaches agreed to shorten the third and the fourth quarters from 15 minutes to 10 minutes each, shortening the total game time from 60 minutes to 50 minutes. Missouri added three touchdowns in the abbreviated second half to make the final score 79-0. to zero setting a team record for the most points scored in a game, the greatest margin of victory, and the largest number of touchdowns scored. And in fact, Missouri would have scored 80 points, but they missed an extra point earlier in the game. Similarly, in a sport like mixed martial arts or MMA, each fighter has the option of tapping out, submitting when the fight has gone beyond what they are comfortable with. If they're in a position where a, a limb could be broken, where they could pass out from a choke, or if they are simply so beat up that they cannot continue. The quickest submission on record in MMA history was in 1995 when Russian fighter Oleg Toktrov put the American Anthony Macias into a guillotine chokehold, resulting in a tap out only nine seconds after the opening bell. The announcements before the fight took longer than the fight itself. <laughs> now, as we get into this new sections of Romans chapter 3 this morning, we are transitioning out of a long section that extended from chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20, where the Apostle Paul was continuing to apply the pressure to all of us, and he did not let off. 
He did not back away. He just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And then when we thought he might back up and give us a break, he pushes more and more and more. And the reality is that all of us have been made aware by Paul now of the undeniable reality of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, of our unrighteousness, of our pride and our worldliness and our natural desires apart from God to go after everything and anything that our flesh desires in rebellion against God. Week after week after week, we have felt the blows of truth that have forced us to examine and to search our hearts, to look in ourselves and to deal with the guilt of our consciences as we've seen ourselves in the text, as we felt the weight of the truth of God's law falling upon us, and now we are at the point where we should all be begging out to the Apostle Paul to apply the mercy rule. We want it to end. We, we want out. It's too devastating. It's too much. It's too, it's too painful to continue to endure this diagnosis of our souls as we are seeing our own depravity. It's too much. It's too painful to continue to endure. And so we're at this place where it is, it is time to tap out and to ask for God's mercy and thanks be to God that as we arrive in verse 21 today, that mercy has arrived. We have choked on the reality of who we really are. But now Paul's going to begin to release that hold and give us some air. We can breathe. We can take a deep breath. We can once again fill our lungs. But let's remember Paul's reason for dredging up our sin and unrighteousness. He wasn't attempting to be callous. He wasn't attempting to be hurtful, but rather his focus was on showing us just how bad the bad news is so that he can reveal to us the goodness of the good news. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you recall he glori gloriously announced what he would be writing about, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And then in verse 18, he began to show us why the good news was so good and why the substance of the good news was such a necessity. I read a compelling book several months ago by a young lady named Park Yon Mi. She's a North Korean defector who escaped with her mom and her sister to China in 2007. <clears throat> she eventually settled in South Korea in 2009. Now, her father earlier in her life had been sent to a labor camp because he was smuggling goods in from China into North Korea and selling them on the black market. And so her family faced starvation. Her mother fell into the hands of human traffickers, and she was almost certain that she would eventually be captured and abused and tortured and killed herself. Nevertheless, Park made it out. She was able to write about all of it. And one of the most prominent ideas that I derived from her story was that it really is difficult to understand just how good things are when they are good. If we don't have a sense of how bad things really can be. Park has an appreciation for freedom like none of us can really have because our experiences in our lives have not been as bad as they could be in a place like North Korea. 
And so in the same kind of way, Paul has been showing us that in our sin, in our fallenness, in our depravity, we are in bondage. We are in slavery to our sin. We are locked into a system of belief and and a, a, a process of futility that we need escape from. But apart from the work of God, we are unwilling to seek it and we are unwilling to find it. And for the very preservation of our eternal lives, we need an escape. And it's only when we realize just how tied down we are in our sins can we truly grasp the sweetness of the mercy and the grace and the love and the goodness of God in the gospel. And so here we are this morning, the beginning of Paul showing us the good news. We feel the weight of the bad We have cried out for mercy, and so now we see the good. Our text this morning is a short paragraph that the reformer Martin Luther wrote is the chief point, the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. Many scholars believe this is the most important paragraph in Paul's letter to the Romans and indeed all of Paul's letters, which makes it perhaps the most important paragraph ever written in the history of mankind. And so we're going to spend at least three Lord's Days looking at these verses, 21 through 26, and we're going to look at them from various angles. This morning, we're going to focus on what Paul writes about righteousness coming to us by faith. Next time we will look at what Paul writes with regard to righteousness coming to us by grace. And then we will consider what the text says to us about righteousness coming to us through or in Christ. And so let's read together. We want to get very familiar with this since we are going to take our time working through it, beginning in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Now, I consider myself something of a grammarian. I love proper grammar. I think it is important. I will correct you on it. I don't care what you think. And as difficult as the English language can be, I tend to appreciate many of the strange nuances and challenges that present themselves when reading and writing. So, it's when I arrive at something like verse 21, I want to say to the Apostle Paul, Paul... You should never begin a sentence with the word but. And yet, one of the fun aspects of language is that you have rules, and from time to time, 
for specific reasons, you can break those rules. And I am content to say that there is no better reason to break this particular rule than how Paul has set up what he has written to get us where we are. He has revealed to us the bad news. He has brought us low. He has shown us we are guilty before God and we have nothing to say in terms of pleading our innocence before God. We have no grounds to plead. We have no excuse to make. All mouths are shut. We are all guilty before God. And then we get this dramatic shift, a glorious transition in this letter where Paul reveals the very heart of the gospel. He has gone far enough in his letter that he is now going to apply the mercy rule. This is a big transition point. So Paul has revealed, you are depraved, you are fallen, you are a sinner, but now. Do not those two words just sort of bring us upright? They bring us to a place of anticipation. I I don't know about you, but for me as a Christian for many years now that preaches the gospel week in and week out, I'm still absolutely excited to hear the words, but God, after I've heard all the bad news about my sin and unrighteousness, but, but God has done something. And so Paul reveals for us the heart of the gospel. He shows us that salvation is by grace alone. We will look at this more next week. He shows us that salvation is through faith alone. And it all happens, it all comes to pass in Christ alone. And the overarching theme, the overarching reason he presents is that it is all because the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now remember, back to Romans chapter 1, again, verses 16 and 17. Paul showed us what his letter was going to be all about. That is this grand, glorious statement with regard to not being ashamed of the gospel, who is, which is for all mankind. This is the introductory statement. Paul is, is headed from there to show us what the power of the gospel accomplishes. And so he's shown us from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3 why that righteousness is so necessary. Namely, because we have none of our own. And so the controlling expression in this paragraph is the righteousness of God. Which could equally be rendered the justice of God or even the justification of God. It primarily refers to God's justifying activity. So that's why we we are looking at righteousness for several weeks. Righteousness by faith, righteousness by grace, righteousness in Christ. This is Paul's focus in this wonderful paragraph. Righteousness is how God prepares us for His standard that on our own we cannot meet and we will not fulfill. The righteous God, in a right way, has righteously made a way to pardon sinners. Guilty before God, the judge of all the earth, and without diminishing, but actually demonstrating His righteousness, He has made a way of counting righteous those who are both sinful and guilty on our own. How does He do it? This is where Paul takes us, where he gives us a summary of how. How does God save sinners and maintain his 
righteousness. The first thing Paul shows us is that righteousness is offered to you apart from the law. Look again, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, there is a very basic instinct that all of us have if we are not Christians, that we may believe that God loves us, we may believe that God wants to save us, but at the end of the day, we assume that God saves people because of what they do or because of who they are. And if you've ever spent any time talking to a non-believer and talking to them about the gospel, you generally get to a point where you ask them something like, why would God accept you? On what basis would God save you and allow you into everlasting peace? And so often the answer is, because I am a good person. I'm not perfect by any means, but I haven't sinned all that much. I'm generous. I'm kind. I'm hardworking. I come to church sometimes. And before I say anything else, I want you to think about that. Why would God accept you? On what basis would God save you? On what basis would God allow you into everlasting peace? Have you ever thought about that? If so, what is your conclusion? Friend, if you're not a Christian or if you've never actually thought about this question, whether or not God would accept you on the basis that you're putting forward. I wonder if you've really thought and just sort of assumed, hey, look, I think God loves me. I'm grateful for what He gives me. I, I, see, his, I see His work all around me, and in my life, I'm a pretty good person. I try to do the right thing, so when I die, I think I'll go to heaven. I hope I do. I I don't see why I wouldn't. There are plenty of people much worse than me out there. And if that's your assumption, and if you desire a status before God where He calls you righteous, if you want a freedom of conscience and a relief from the burden of guilt that you know is there, it is indeed offered to you. This salvation, this this journey to heaven is absolutely offered to you, but please hear me. It is offered to you apart from anything that you can do or anything that you can try to earn. Any attempt to earn your salvation is a sure road to condemnation. It is to attempt to stand on your own merits. It is an attempt to stand on your own righteousness, which Paul has shown us over two and a half chapters that it is surely not good enough. Friend, if you think your supposed goodness is good enough, you have not begun to understand the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ can only be received as a free gift of God. And Paul stresses this later in these very verses. It is a gift of God's grace. It cannot be earned, and it is so easy, even for us as Christians, to forget this reality. We, we so often think that God accepts us because of the kind of Christians we are. There are entire 
denominations and theologies built on this false notion that God's love for me rises and falls based on the things that I do or don't do. I prayed today. I read my Bible today. I didn't say any cuss words today. I didn't think any bad thoughts that were too bad about that person who cut me off in traffic. I realized at one point that I was gossiping, so instead of saying anything, I was just listening. It was a pretty good day, so I know the Lord is very pleased with me. Ah, but then tomorrow, I missed my Bible reading. I fell asleep while I was praying. I definitely said some cuss words. I was very angry at the person who was driving in the left lane who absolutely should have been in the right lane. And I had a good time gossiping about everyone and anyone. It, was a, it wasn't a good day before the Lord, and so God is probably wondering why He ever saved me today in the first place. And so you see, we think like that, as though God's love for us ebbs and flows based on our activity. And so we assume then that our salvation, our standing before God, is dependent upon us and what we do and how we do it. This is our natural way of thinking. So what, what have we done as Christians? We've built these arbitrary fences around things to get further and further away to make sure we don't get too close or else we might do something that we think will keep us from God's love. And, and so we, we end up condemning and despising the things that God does not condemn or despise but has in fact given to us as gifts to enjoy. And in so doing, we just fuel our legal hearts. And, and as our legal hearts are fueled, we feel more and more justified in ourselves. And the result is that we start to look at others with less and less grace and more and more judgment. And so we can make ourselves feel like we're better Christians and surely God loves me more because I don't drink or cuss or chew or date girls who do. But listen, I know you know this because I've addressed this for several weeks now, but we all need to be reminded of this consistently, don't we? The moment we think that God accepts us because of what we do or don't do, the second we think God accepts us because of our level of sanctification, that is the moment that we have begun to destroy the gospel. More and more as Christians, we grow in our faith and we need to have a greater and greater sense that our salvation is ours without us fulfilling or trying to fulfill the law. We cannot earn it. It is only when we truly grasp that reality that we start to live in light of that reality and we start to live a life that is truly transformed because we stop trying to live on the merits of our own works and instead live upon Christ and His works for us. The glory of the gospel is that it comes to us apart from works of the law. So the worst thing that could, we could possibly do is try to smuggle our works back down into the foundation of why we think it is that we are who we are and that we shall receive what we receive from God in our salvation. You see, when you try to live within this legal framework, your entire life is lived legally. And so all of your relationships begin to get worked out on the basis of the law. And when that's the case, you don't have relationships of grace. 
You don't have relationships of peace. You don't have relationships of kindness and patience. You are constantly at odds with others. You are regularly finding yourself in conflict. You are always trying to justify your behavior because you have assumed you are right based on whatever standard you have concocted that others are living upon based on what it is that you insist. Listen, if your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people at the store, the people at your doctor's office, the people at the bank, your kid's coach, your kid's teacher, whoever it is, on and on, if they're afraid to say anything to you the wrong way or to do something with or to you or around you because they think it will be perceived in the wrong way because they just know it's going to cause you to blow up and to lash out at them, then whether you recognize it or not, you are living upon your own legal standard and you are assuming that your righteousness is coming from you instead of where we should be looking, which is in Christ. It is when we understand what it means to live upon the righteousness of Christ that we begin to live at peace with others because we now operate from a place of grace. We now operate from a place of mercy. We now operate from a place of recognizing that the righteous standing that I have before God is a gift from God, and I did not earn it despite who I really am. And that changes us. That frees us, that relieves us from our self-imposed obligation to live out of a legal heartedness. And so we, brothers and sisters, we have righteousness offered to us apart from the law. The second thing Paul shows us is that the law and the prophets bear witness to God's righteousness. Look again at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It was a while ago, but if you think back to chapter 1, the very beginning, the apostle wrote that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power. So this is sort of a motif in Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's something he will return to again in a very big way in chapter 4. Namely, the idea that the Old Testament Scriptures bear witness to the righteousness of God. The Old Testament Scriptures bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior to which all of the Scriptures point. Now listen, for some reason, many Christian circles believe that it is not a good thing for a believer to say or to think what I'm about to say, but I will stake my entire ministry on this hill upon which I am willing to let my livelihood die. All of Scripture, from beginning to end, not only bears witness to, but is about and is for the Lord Jesus Christ. And a fascinating thing here the Apostle Paul is doing. Think about this. He just finished telling us that the righteousness of God comes apart from the law. And yet, he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But what is he getting at? 
Neither of them, neither the law or the message of the prophets or the prophets themselves were adequate to bring salvation. They were signposts, and these are signposts that are all there to point us to Christ. That's what they're there for. And if you don't get to Christ, it's like saying, I want to go to New York City. And so I get my car out on I-95, and I head north on I-95, and the first time I see a sign that says New York City, I pull over and I just stop there. Well, the problem is the sign said New York City 300. I still have 300 miles to go, so why am I stopping? You're not there yet, but you see, this is exactly what was happening for the Jews. That is exactly what happens to any of us who would assume that the Old Testament wasn't about more than simply giving us narratives about the amazing things that God has done throughout history with His people. If we miss Christ in the Old Testament, we miss the meaning of the Bible. Remember Jesus' interaction with the disciples at the end of the book of Luke? They're on the road to Emmaus. And you have these two disciples walking. Jesus has been resurrected, but he's not yet ascended. And they're walking along, and Jesus comes up beside them. And we learn that one of them is named Cleopas, and the other one didn't have his name tag on, so we're not sure who that is. But they're talking with each other. And Jesus, however he does this, disguises himself, if you will. And he comes up, and he says, what are you guys talking about? And they're all somber and downcast and upset about everything that's gone on. And they say, well, don't you know? Haven't you heard? Jesus has been crucified. And someone stole his body from the tomb. We don't know where he is. And now he's gone. And we put all of our hope in him. And now we don't know. Now, the amazing thing to me about this text is that Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, look at me. Hear my voice. It's me chill out, right? He doesn't reveal to them, it's me. What does he do? He says, wait a second. Do do you remember the Scriptures? Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 when God was cursing the serpent and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring and your offspring and he will you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Do you remember that? That was, that was an announcement of the gospel. And do you remember soon after that, the Lord covered his people with animal skins to show that by his grace, he has a covering for them to clothe them in righteousness. And do you remember, and he's going all through the scriptures, all the scriptures that they knew and loved and had been reading and understanding and memorizing their whole lives, and he's showing them one text after another, after another, after another, that they would see that all of this was foretold and all of this was about Jesus. And it wasn't until after he showed them all of this from the Old Testament, after they've walked six or seven miles on this road, that Jesus says, by the way, that's me. That's who I am. And I am your Savior, and you can rest in this, what has been proclaimed and what has happened. You see, Jesus wanted them to see that the Scriptures were true and trustworthy and that all of the Bible has been written about Christ to bear witness to the gospel. One of the more frustrating things about 
postmodern stories that we so often see today in books and movies is that when they end, they end without redemption, or they end with the bad guy winning, or the idea that maybe there really isn't good triumphing over evil. That's the mindset that these disciples had before Jesus came to them. We were reading a great story, we had these great scriptures before us, but now it's just all over, and there's nothing good to come of it. But that's just what it will be if we only look at the Old Testament and we don't consider beyond this time, beyond this time when Jesus came and lived and died and was raised from the dead, because all of that points us forward to Christ where redemption is found and the story ends triumphantly. If all you have is the law, you're trying to win your salvation and there will be no redemption. So what now? What do I do about this? How do I get there? Well, Paul shows us that God's righteousness can be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If we really desire to know and relate to and be accepted by God, the only way is through trust, is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the righteousness is applied and supplied to us. Again, just like prior to our salvation, when the Lord begins to awaken us, our first instinct is to go right back to trying harder and doing better. But it will crush you. It will crush everyone around you. The call is to go to Jesus, to get into Jesus Christ, to believe Christ, to believe into Christ. That's often how the New Testament language is, in Christ. We are hidden in Christ and His righteousness becomes ours as though it were ours itself. And so we've taken this journey this morning to get us to this place to ask, what is faith? It is simply us coming to God with empty hands, reaching out and taking hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His work on our behalf, His death on our behalf, His resurrection to conquer sin and death on our behalf. You see, by nature, we come to God with tightly clenched fists. I'll do it myself. I will grit my teeth. I will try harder. But in time, by God's grace, He pries open our hands and we see nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer. When we come to God, all we can do is take. And Jesus says, come and take me. Take all that I have to offer. Take all that I have to give you. Take hold of me. Faith is taking hold of Jesus Christ. Faith is setting your eyes upon Jesus Christ in the way that Moses raised up the serpent in the desert and said that all who would look on the serpent would be saved from death in the same way as we look upon Christ upon the cross, taking on Himself the judgment that is due to all of us, taking the penalty in our place, that as we look to Him, we might live. We might be healed. And it is all as simple as that, really. Really? 
Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Because Jesus fulfilled the law that we cannot fulfill. Because Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Because Jesus was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death that we might live with him forever. And so he says, by faith, come to me. Put your trust and hope in me, and I will give you rest, and I will give you a righteous standing before the Father. Now, Paul already started this paragraph with the word but, and we've decided to let that slide grammatically. But now, there's another problem here. He's being a little bit redundant, isn't he? He writes in verse 22, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he writes, for all who believe. Isn't he just saying the same thing over again? He's showing us that salvation is by faith and it is for all who believe. And it's here that we really see the full force of the but now statement that Paul makes at the beginning of the paragraph. You see, the the but now is not just Paul sort of keeping us on track through his flow, through his argument. It's not like he's writing, okay, first the Gentiles are sinful, secondly the Jews are self-righteous, thirdly all sinners are in need of Christ, but now. Now, it's not that kind of statement. This, This isn't a sort of stepping stone for his argument. No, now he's writing to remind us that there had once been a time when God had looked on this fallen world and He had chosen one small group of people and He kept them as the sacred guardians of the truth that Jesus Christ was going to come. And now that Jesus Christ has come, because righteousness is offered to us apart from the law, it is received by faith and it is available to all who believe. Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. Not just the East, but also the West. Not just the rich, but also the poor. Not just the wise, but also the simple. Not just the young, but also the old. Jesus is offered to all and is for all, and that is why he emphasizes that this righteousness is offered to all without distinction, because God shows no partiality in judging us for our sin, but the other part to that is that God shows no partiality in offering the gospel to the people of the world that we might believe in Christ by faith. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be tall or skinny or short or fat or good at basketball or a car mechanic or an engineer or a billionaire or a one centenaire. There are not different paths that we take to Christ. There is only one journey that we all walk to receive the righteousness of God, and that journey is the journey that is in faith in Christ. And we all need to walk that one path because Paul tells us in verse 23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, but now, the righteousness of God comes to us by faith. Friends, is there a but now in your life? As you think of your life prior to hearing the gospel, to knowing or believing the gospel, 
Is there a but now in your life where you turned to Christ by faith and received Him? We sing those beautiful words. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Felicia and I were watching a concert and a whole thousands of people stood up and were singing this song, some jazz musicians playing it. And I wondered to myself, how many of those people really know what they are saying right now? That it is by God's grace, by faith, as we come to Him, that we, a blind and broken people, dead in our transgressions and sins, can now see, can now live, can now walk forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? Have you had a but now moment in your life? Friend, come to Christ by faith and take hold of Him in all of His righteousness that you might live with Him forever and ever. Amen.